when we come into God's presence, there ought to be an expectation. When we meet with someone that we find value in, or we've heard is valuable, don't you come with a sort of posture that says, I'm ready to receive what you have to give. This can show itself in the form of friendships, right? When you meet with a friend, you expect your friends to listen, to be of good cheer, to offer something to you that you can't give to yourself. And I think to the degree that we approach people or things that we know have great value and worth, we naturally come, we walk in front of these people or these things with a certain expectation or hope that it will give to us something that we don't have ourselves. I think when it comes to approaching God, there needs to be an expectation to be refreshed. Everyone say refreshed. There is a particular refreshment that comes from God because He is our Creator. He is our Maker. He is the author of our beings. And there's no one else more than He who knows what brings fulfillment and wholeness to our souls. Because of that, we ought to have an expectation whenever we approach God, especially in His Word. But sometimes it's hard to draw that, isn't it? We know this because at the beginning of every year, most people in the church, right? I find this to be universally true. <laughs> With exception. <laughs> New Year's resolution. What's your spiritual New Year's resolution? I can't say this for certain, but I'd like to think that at least 50% of people say, my resolution this year is to finish the Bible cover to cover. <laughs> this holds to be true for the better part of Genesis. Why? Genesis is so narratively fun, right? Ooh, exciting, right? I believe that so much of the church has probably read Joseph's story in Egypt more than anything else in the Bible, right? <laughs> but what happens? Exodus is pretty fun, right? Like the first 60 so odd percent of it. And then you get to the part when Israel's called to build this thing called the tabernacle. And for the better part of the rest of Exodus, you're left with measurements, the outer courts, the fabric, and the color of that fabric, who's allowed to touch it, what the priests are supposed to wear, and so forth. And you're like, um, Lord, there's always next year, right, to fulfill this resolution. Right? We get stuck along the way. Part of what I want us to go into discovering this afternoon, as you even read through Psalm 19, as, is, as it is our text for today, is to try to get a hold of what about God's word that's designed to bring refreshment to our souls. So last week, I talked about the value of staying near God's word and the value of even though it takes time, it's long. The word of God transforms us, but it's not always like. It's a delightfully long journey that God invites us to. But we have to understand what about that journey? What about staying near God's word? brings refreshment to my being. In other words, what should I expect? And that's the question that I want us to explore today. That's the question I want to bring at hand so that you and I can walk out of this room today understanding what elements of God's Word am I supposed to look forward to as I seek Him in my daily walk. So again, the question is, in short, how does God's Word refresh us? How does the Word refresh us today? So if you have your Bibles with you, turn back to Psalm chapter 19, or if you've got your phones, tablets, 
Turn to Psalm 19. And if you're there, let me hear you say, Amen. Amen. Psalm 19 is also a psalm of David. Now, not all of the psalms are written by King David. Um, There's a handful. There's a lot. And Psalm 19 is one of those that King David himself authored and penned. And in case some of you guys have been wondering, the psalms were not designed in its original intent to just be read. Did you guys know that the psalms were meant to be sung? Yeah. Um, so you have a lot of new worship movements coming out that, putting, that are putting psalms to songs, right? Which is exciting because in its design, these songs were meant to be sung so that we could put rhythm to the praise of God as found in these passages. Okay. So Psalm chapter 19. I'm actually going to start in verse 7. Okay. Verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. King David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And so Psalm 19 is King David's love song for God's word. Now, when you think about that, it's kind of strange. Because most love songs are written to people. To real beings. And yet, what David is doing, even from the get-go, is he's writing a love song about God's word. But that cues us in onto something. You see, because to David, God's word is not just writing. God's word to David is an extension of God himself. So King David is not being strange by saying, oh, I just love the words for the sake of the words. He's saying, I love the words because I love the person who gives these words to me. Everything that's described from verses 7 and on describes how the law brings a pleasantness to the lives of those who receive it. It brings refreshment so if you go back to verse 7 some of the descriptions of how the law is king david writes that it revives the soul it makes wise a simple it rejoices the heart it enlightens the eyes all the descriptions of the word of god the law of the lord as it's presented here is that it is refreshing interestingly in verse 10 just so that This talk of loving God's word isn't just an abstract idea or a holy thing that only holy people confess and do. He grounds it in the tangible. Look at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. King David now presents as a way to compare. Now, if you're King David, you have access Every fine riches that the land has to offer you. And he elevates these two. Gold. Even much fine gold. Because did you know that gold has different degrees of purity, right? 10K, 14K, 24K, and so forth. King David says you can't even compare the word to the purest gold that you could find in the land. I would rather have this word than all the gold you can give to me. Not only what can satisfy my riches in my bank account, 
But I'd rather have the law, the word of God, than even the sweetest drippings of the honeycomb. To the ancient eye and to the ancient mouth, I should say, there was nothing that compared in sweetness to the pure honey that these people would seek after. The law, the word, by comparison, I'd rather have it than anything else, any of the richest things that the land has to offer. Now, I want to ground this in our daily experience a little bit. It's, ah, that's nice, good. Yeah, of course, you're the pastor. You have to say that about God's word, right? I think Psalm 19 in these verses poses a question. What do I treasure? What do I hold in my heart that takes the majority of my thoughts, my being, and translates into my actions? It's Chuseok season. I found that in Korea, people really treasure their vacation times. <laughs> right? I mean, it's true like everywhere else in the world as well. You know, it's not just a limited to Korea thing. But I will say this. In Korea, you guys work so hard. Amen? Amen. I don't think that's societally healthy, but I don't have a solution because those are the rules that society has just made, right? Korea's history is fascinating. There's no other nation in the entire world where they emerge, where we, you know, as a Korean nation have emerged from being a very, very, very third world country to now an emerging, leading first world order, right? Like Samsung, right? The pride of Korea, right? Every Android owner. Ah, yeah, right? Right? But there's a reason why Korean people treasure their vacations so much. Because you work so stinking hard. Overtime is not a blessing where it's like, dang, I'm going to get paid double. Overtime in the eyes of Korean companies is an expectation. Right? It's a standard. So what happens? We treasure in our hearts vacation time, right? I was watching Home Shopping. Not because I want to, but it always stops you, right? On your way to the next channel. And some lady comes out and she's like, everyone, everyone, look at this, right? I'm, I'm translating, right? 고객님, 고객님, 여러분, 이거 보세요, right? <laughs> They're selling ocean world packages, right? It's like Caribbean Bay, right? And it's like, oh, hotel, all these things. It's so cheap. Book your dates right now. I know it. I know you have only four days available in the whole year, right? It's like eight, right? Chuseok and, and Lunar New Year, right? They already know when your dates are, so they start pitching these dates, right? Oh, don't you want to go here? We treasure our vacations. What else do we treasure? We treasure what our money could buy us. We treasure status. We treasure honor. We treasure worth. We treasure a lot of different things because we think that these things satisfy us. You know what I hate about vacation, though? You know what I hate about that new thing? I love new things, by the way, guys. I love the smell of new car. When one of my friends buys a new car, I don't necessarily want to ride in it. Like, it's cool, too, right? I just love smelling it so nice. There's, nothing, no, there's no smell like new car smell. Right? We love these things. But you know what the reality is about all this? It all comes to an end. Sorry to burst your bubble, but Chuseok ends this Thursday. <laughs> You'll be back in your office. <laughs> so you could put all your worth, all your treasure, everything that's contained in your heart's value and worth 
for the next three days. But the next three days comes to an end. And you could do it again. Oh, but Pastor Billy, we have vacation next year. And, and, and next year, and next year, and next year. And then one day you're dead. <laughs> it's the grim reality. I believe the psalmist in bringing this comparison about the word of God as being more treasurable than anything else that the world has to offer is his plea to us today saying, I know it sounds so Bible right. But he's trying to make a stance, an offering to us saying, no, 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 I just want you to see that it's not just another Christian thing. But I want to direct your eyes and your heart to something that will last. A satisfaction, a blessedness that will go longer than just a new outfit, a new car, or a new vacation. I want to draw you towards a lasting satisfaction. How do I know if I'm satisfied? How do I know if I'm content? How do you measure this? I have a very easy test for us. It's a test that I fail quite often as well. Okay. When you go home today, and parents, I know we don't always have this luxury, right, because we're watching our kids, right? But tonight, if you're a parent, or for anyone else, you're not a parent, just when you go home, and you're by yourself, you want to know what are the contents of your heart? Sit down in your nothingness. Sit down when there's nothing around you but just yourself and your empty room. What begins to come out? What thoughts begin to emerge? What do you begin to tell yourself? If I just have this thing, or if I just have this person, or if I'm just in this circumstance, or if I'm just in that situation, my life would be better. And take a moment to write those things down. Take inventory. And you'll see for yourself all the things, all the gold, all the honey that drips from the honeycomb that as good as those things may be actually keep us from finding what lasts longer on the other side. The writer of the proverb says, guard your heart. Guard it. With all vigilance, for from, for from it flow springs of life. It's fascinating how the things that we think about, how the things that we just allow to come into our hearts and take root, so determine our level of satisfaction as we look at ourselves in the world, but also as we look at ourselves in front of God. Because the heart is our command center, and everything about our lives comes from what's happening inside of it. I wish I could escape that. I wish, I wish scripture would say, like, your heart's kind of important, but what you enter into, oh, that's, that's equally important. And yet, scripture talks so much more about the state of my being than it does about the state of my surroundings. In fact, scripture, more often than not, talks about how God invites discomforting situations, discomforting circumstances as a way to draw out the things on our heart so that at the end of it, God often does change our circumstance, 
but never without addressing the circumstance of my being and my heart. So again, the psalmist is indirectly asking us, how's your heart? And how is it when you're left with nothing besides this thing called God's word? Is it as reviving as it speaks of? Does it really bless you as much as it claims to bless? Verse 11. King David continues by saying, Moreover, I'm going to add to the great love song and confession that I started my verse with. Here I go into the chorus. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now I got a real question to ask the writer of this love song, King David. King David. Seriously, bro, who can be like you? I mean, you're King David. Of course, you have to be the one who makes this sort of confession because, I mean, hey, you're the guy who knows how to kill bears and lions with your bare hands, right? You're the one who's had encounters where you take your little slingshot and a tiny little pebble and you know how to take down giants. You're the king who better than Saul, who took down his thousands, you took down your tens of thousands. Of course you have a love song like this because God's given you nothing but good. We have a question of potential despair where we look at the word and we look at ourselves and we go, I'm just not like this guy. Where does a confession like this come from And what does it have to do with, at times, if I can be honest, what does this confession have anything to do with common folk like me? In my day-to-day life, King David, right, his day-to-day is what? Hmm, let's move into that neighboring nation. And if they do not convert, right, they do not listen to the blessings of God, we will just take them over, right? His day job is keeping the kingdom that God gave to him. And for us, it's what? I got to show up to work at 8 a.m. <clears throat> I have to be faithful with these menial, quote unquote, tasks that God has given to me. We feel quite different from this psalmist. And yet, I wouldn't be preaching this message if I didn't feel like this psalm was written for all of us today. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to assure you that King David is not speaking like some kind of Superman. But there's a way that he has come to this relation, the relationship with God and this relation, realization of the place that he stands in front of God. And this is where we go back to the beginning of this psalm. I want to backtrack and go back to verse 1 to find exactly the answer behind that question. What is it about God's word that brings, brings refreshment? That brings us to this place where we're able to make a confession like this King David here. Verse 1 says this. (coughs) The heavens declare the glory of God. 
and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there any words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. Psalm 19, before it gets to the application of what it does to the individual, begins with a declaration of how even creation reflects the Word of God. Psalm 19 begins with a description of the Word of God through the perspective of nature and how nature speaks out on the greatness of God through its ongoing existence, if you will. (coughs) Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. First time I read Psalm 19, verse 1. In seminary, our final, for our first theology class, my first theology class that I took, the final Our professor made us memorize Psalm 19 and to write it down on our final. That was part one of our final exam. And I remember the first time I began to go through Psalm 19 and I meditated on it, right? When you memorize, you have to say it out loud, right? Flashcard, you do the whole deal, right? And as I started speaking out, in particular, the first few verses of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. God gave me a strange thought. And I knew it was strange, and I knew it was from God because no one else would encourage me to do this. I sensed the Lord saying, Billy, how much of verse 1 do you take to heart? And I said, oh, it's good. It's a good word, God. Ooh, yeah. Mm, Oh, it's hitting me. And then I felt God say, then walk outside right now and let the reality of my word speak to you. So I felt like that was my God-given task in that moment to walk outside and to just look and examine how the heavens declare the glory of God, how the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And I began to ask myself questions. God, what did it look like when you made that? You ever think of that? What Genesis 1 looked like as God stirred up creation out of nothing and he made the expanse. And that's majestic. Scientists, the closest they can come to the understanding of that is the idea of the Big Bang, right? Now, just quick disclaimer. You, you can be a good Christian and still believe in the Big Bang, okay? Right? I, I don't know. I, I don't know how God did it exactly, but I see it could be involved, right? God, how'd you make that happen? What did that look like? Man, that's so powerful of God to do something like that. Verse 2, day to day, the heavens and the sky pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Even nature continues to speak out on behalf of God's awesome majesty and splendor. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. King David is saying there are no better words than the words that the heavens proclaim that could speak the awesomeness of his existence. 
Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And he continues on and on and on. Thank you so much. The idea that the psalmist is giving is this. God spoke his words to bring creation into existence. So the refreshment that the world experienced at the coming of creation was that even out of nothing, I will make something so great, so beautiful, so awesome, so refreshing. And I think of Eden. I think of the joy that Adam and Eve were able to experience as a result of God's word having created that place. And so the psalmist draws on this idea of creation from big, big, big. Look at what God's word does in the big, big picture to now the confession that comes from verses 7 to 14 of the individual man, the one speck. There are billions and billions and billions of people who gather on this world. And there are billions upon billions and billions of people who have made up the entirety of the earth's historical population. And yet, the psalmist in Psalm 19 is declaring that there's something so big about God's word that is now going to be contained in every single individual through this thing called His written word. His given word. And so King David realized that refreshment is not just the result of living life a certain way. It's not just a moral call in and of itself. As though, Although I want to say that living morally is a great thing. His confession in Psalm 19 doesn't say, The moral life revives the soul. The moralist finds so much refreshment in his being. No, he says the law of the Lord is so perfect and it revives the soul. The law, his words, his precepts. These are the things that endure, are great and true. He realizes that refreshment is the result of doing something with the greatness of God contained in these words. And so verses 1 to 6 is just a setup. It's a setup to help us understand that the mystery and the grandeur of creation speaks in to the power of God's revealed, given, and seen word that we have with us today. So the question, how does the word refresh us? How is this thing called the Bible? Why do people keep reading the Bible? Why do people keep going back to this thing and they make these holy confessions? Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so great. It's all I need. Why are people able to stand on that truth? It's because of this. The word refreshes us by allowing us to contain the splendor, the majesty, and the awesome of God in our daily lives. That's why the God, word of God refreshes us. Because in its design, in its intent, 
God knew that he would have to give us something objective, something tangible, something beyond your and my own experience to be able to know what it is about God and who it is about God that when we encounter him through this place will cause our souls to come alive like at the creation of the heavens and the earth. It changes how we look at his word, does it not? It's not just a book, although it's been given to us as a book. It's not just words, although God has spoken his words into it. The Bible, the word of God, his revelation in its design, in its intent, is to take the best of who he is and contain it in some words so that when it hits our hearts, greatness unfolds. Transformation can't help but take place. Praise can't sit down, but it has to stand up and jump out of our mouths. Because the barren soul begins to make contact with the living stream. And so where there is nothing but barrenness, deserts, God now makes forests in our wilderness. So perhaps some of us, I want to raise my hand first on this too, okay? It's not always easy. It's not easy getting through God's word all the time. Especially when you hit places like genealogy, right? Oh my gosh, I, I'm tired of, of reading like the 50 generations, the son of Fafiohe, right? yeah, right? Who was the son of whatever, But we keep going, right? But I want to put it this way. When we can establish that God's word is his splendor, his majesty, his awesomeness contained in this place, it changes the way that we have perspective on us even coming to it. How many of you guys like a good steak? <laughs> I'm sorry to offend you if you're vegetarian, okay? I love a good steak, right? Um, I heard in Korea, they, they actually, well, it's not steak, right? But prime rib, right? I enjoy prime rib. They just, I don't know when it got created, but there's a lorries in Korea, right? But there's a lorries, right, in the States as well. They're kind of like a prime rib specializers. I don't know, whatever, right? And it's cool. It's a really cool place. Now, if someone told me that I would be able to satisfy my hunger but every day I had an opportunity to satisfy that by going to Laurie's. Well, I wouldn't think twice. <laughs> I'd carve out schedule, room, and space to make myself available <laughs> to that prime rib sitting in front of me. Why? Because I know what that prime rib will do to me. I know the satisfaction that will come from it. So what looks like work in the process of putting that prime rib in front of me, doesn't feel like work at all. In fact, it's not, because it pales in comparison to the satisfaction or the encounter 
of meat to mouth. I believe part of it is restructuring our hearts to find the belief in our souls that this is exactly what God invites us to. To savor, to delight, to find joy in a long-lasting nearness to the awesome splendor of God revealed in His Word. I wish there was another way sometimes. I wish that the only things I'd have to encounter with God to find His majesty come hit me real close are all the great spiritual experiences that we know of. Come on. Who doesn't like going to a new revival or another conference? Right? Someone's going to show up and they're just going to... Come on, everybody receive. Yeah! Right? Now, I believe it. I believe it. I don't, I'm not looking down on it. Right? Sometimes I wish that was like the only avenue because who doesn't like showing up and you just, you know, you know what I'm talking about? You, you get it, right? Yeah, all right. Oh, come on, God, drop me today. Right? But I think God is much wiser than that. I don't think God took that out of our experience. But I think God says to us that there's a place that's more sure. It's not your experience that you can interpret through the lens of your own heart. But the surest place where you will find encounter in the spirit is the encounter that takes place and unfolds. And the most objective place that God tells us he has revealed himself in. Who am I to say? That the greatest miracles that take place are not just when a person gets dropped by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not when just bondages come off in a revival meeting because we prayed something off. I believe some of the greatest miracles and breakthroughs in people's journeys before God take place in the quietness and the solitude of their own beings before God through His Word. How many times have I wrestled with extreme displeasure against another human being? Translation, how many times have I hated someone before? Sure, I can go somewhere and someone just prays for me and they go, come on, uh, break it, break it, break it. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And how many times... Have I been in cases and situations like that myself? I'm not talking about anyone else. Where I walk out and I go, but that's just that person telling me what to do. Or that's just that person telling me what biblically is right. But it's what that person is telling me. But how many times have I gone back to scripture? Not because I'm just reading, but because I'm saying, God, I'm meeting you right now. You speak to me. You address the deepest parts of my soul. And how many times have I read passages like in the gospel when Jesus speaks to Peter saying, you want to know what it means to forgive? You want to know how many times to forgive? 70 times 7. Oh, forgive him, Lord, 490 times, but on the 491st offense, I'm allowed to hate his guts for the rest of my life? No, of course not. 
God says, no, love that individual. And now I'm left to deal with the majesty of God, the awesomeness, the splendor of God's love, not just as some idea that we sing about and we love flowing in and out of in worship, right? Who doesn't love singing about the love of God until you have to love someone with the love of God? But what's the only place where that sort of miracle can take place? As I'm dealing with him. As I'm working through that breakthrough. As I'm looking into the face of that miracle. See, those miracles don't always get publicized or hyped. We love some of just the external, outward manifestations themselves. But what about the manifestation of love of something like called the miracle of forgiveness that takes place? in our day-to-day, as we encounter God's glory. In short, this is what I'm trying to say. We cannot reduce encounter, breakthrough, and receiving God's glory from simply the perspective of what happens in the experience of revival settings and so forth, when revival was designed to take place in the deepest parts of my heart. As I look face to face with God in his word. This is the challenge. And I'm drawing from last week's message because you see, we often want our reading of God's word to create something so awesome in the way that we construe it to be. But God's word often challenges us in the places that we least expect But God says the key to your breakthrough actually lies in the quiet addressing of that thing that I'm doing. And who am I to say that I'm not encountering God in those moments? Sometimes I encounter God. Sometimes people in Scripture encounter God and they wish they didn't. Case in point, the prophet Jonah. Jonah, the prophet, Lord, speak to me, right? That's, that's the aim of every prophetic heart and voice. God, speak to me today. God says to Jonah, go and preach repentance to the Ninevites who have destroyed your people, who have slaughtered your people merciless, mercilessly, ruthlessly. Go, bring revival to that nation. Jonah says, I wish I never heard that from you. So what happens? gets on a boat and goes in the complete opposite direction. Why? Because God's word, as it creates a miracle, as it creates encounter in our own lives, addresses things that we often wish that God doesn't. And yet, that is the key to the miracle that God is producing in your life. We have to invite that. And that's the path to refreshment. To let his word bring about those circumstances in our lives. To have more of him in these ways. So I want to end with just a few words of application. Three things. One, and I'm piggybacking off of last week. We have to continue to release God's word in community. I know, it could be awkward. Because you don't want to be labeled as that person who's trying too hard. Right? I don't 
don't know what happened culturally in Christianity, right? But, but there's like this shift that's taking place where it's like cool to just be very vulnerable and honest. And that's important because like old generation Christianity was like, everything is okay. My life is fine. Right? And that's why we have a generation of us now that I, nah, man, my dad used to go to church and be like, everything's fine, but he used to beat me all the time, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. That was maybe too, <laughs> I went too far. Yeah. So our generation, and I don't think it's bad. We embrace vulnerability. We embrace honesty. We embrace authenticity. But sometimes we leave behind the value of God in the way that we can speak his heart to one another. That's what I talked about last week. When you meet up with a friend and you share life with each other, Sometimes I ask myself, am I really sharing life if I don't invite the author of life into my discussions? Or as I'm reading something and I'm meeting with someone, am I really sharing life if I don't share the encouragement that God has given to me through his own word? Remember one of the first times I was dealing so hard with shame as a new believer in college. And I was condemning myself. I couldn't even bear to face God because I was like, man, I just, I feel so unworthy. Someone gifted me Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I needed every single word that came from his word. There is therefore now no condemnation. Wow. Wow. So God, you're telling me that I could actually look at myself and not condemn myself for all the things that I should condemn myself for? God goes, yeah, that's right. Lord, when can I start doing that? Now. 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 You start now, son. You start now, daughter. You start now, church. And that has become one of the passages that I love giving away to so many other people. To share life in this way. To share the word communally. You don't have to be a Bible scholar, friends. You don't have to go to seminary. You just need to invite God into the places that he desires to come into. That's one. Two, how do we invite refreshment through his word? I want to propose to you perhaps one of the deepest insights that comes from Psalm 19. is to do what the word says. Now, I do want to qualify this. We cannot possibly, in our present states, in our present moments, always do everything that the Word tells us to. We would then be Jesus. But we can do the one, two, three, four, five things that God brings before our plates today. We can be faithful with the things that God addresses in our lives today. The call isn't towards perfection. But I want to go back to what the psalmist says. He says in verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. His desire is just to do the work, the word of the Lord, sorry, the word of the Lord in the places that God has called him to. And we know he's being real because he says, Keep me from presumptuous sins. Keep me from hidden errors and hidden sins. God, things that I don't even know. Lord, direct me away from those things. 
He says these things because he recognizes that there is a sweetness that comes when the word of God applies itself deep in the ways that he calls us to do it. Open your hearts and your ears to the Holy Spirit. See what he's speaking. It may not always be the thing that you tell yourself. He might tell you something in his word that might be different, but altogether true for that season in your life. And lastly, invite spiritual encounter that's driven by the word. Ask God, Lord, can you come? And as I read today, can you allow a miracle to take place? You know, sometimes people get sensitive when they hear other people go, I read God's word today and he was speaking exactly to me. Some people get nervous by that. You know why? And it's always the smart people. (laughs) Well, actually, the Bible was not written to you, right? Historically, scripture was written to a particular audience in a particular time. And it is now our jobs to interpret the valid meaning and the hermeneutical interpretation that therefore comes from it. Yes, that is true. That is proper scriptural interpretation and reading it. However, if that's all it is, then scripture is just an academic exercise. The end goal of our reading of God's word is that we would have a spiritual encounter with God. So yeah, God is speaking to someone else. He spoke to someone else, but he spoke to someone else so that those words can now speak to me. Don't tremble in front of the person who says that. No, 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 no. You make God's revelation now yours. Take it. Own it. But invite it. Ask God to come and do something amazing. Who knows? He might speak through genealogy. He might speak through some of the most unbeknownst parts of Scripture unto us today. We can find refreshment from a lot of different places in life. But I would ask, and I'll plead with you today, try inviting God's word. If you want to start small, start small. I remember someone came up to me a long time ago and said, Pastor Billy, I'm so proud of myself. I read a chapter this week. And you could look at them and be like, Psh. It's like junior varsity, right? I said, congratulations. Great job. So good. Because you're starting somewhere. And a chapter is a chapter of still having to encounter the glory of God for you this week. And I want to end by just making this connection. John in John chapter 1 gives to a very profound, gives us a very profound statement in verse 14. When he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. How do I know with certainty that God's word is meant to refresh us? Because the aim of Jesus and the intent of his coming to us was not just so that he can crush us with more commands. 
or to bring us down with more exhortations. But the goal of Jesus Christ was to save his people. The design of God's word, friends, is that it would save you today. That it would save you tomorrow. That it would be saving you until this word, Jesus Christ, returns for us. Whether it be a chapter, a book, or all the Bible, I would invite you into this great, delightfully long journey of seeing what can take place when we let the refreshment of God's glory come through His Word. Let's pray.